You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Um, I want to thank everybody for coming tonight. I'm Rena Weissman. I am here on behalf of Variety Children's Charity, whose room you're sitting in. Um, Variety is a international children's charity. We've been around since 1927, and we do fun things like raise money for children in need. Uh, this is one of the fun things we do to do that. You will have noticed, of course, the bar set up out there, and 100% of the proceeds and tips for that go to Variety, which means they're very happy with us, and our events will continue for however long Terry is willing to do them. And uh, to date, we've been here, I think, a little little under two years, a little over two years with the movies and the author's things, and we've raised almost $10,000 for the charity. So we'd like to thank you all who have cheerfully bought whiskey and beer all this time for that. We really appreciate little that. Little did you know. Yes, our, our, our tagline is shots for tots, but uh, <laughs> booze for babes, you know. That sort of thing, but it works. I'm also here with Tachyon Publications, who underwrites uh, these events, our SF in SF series, which is the monthly authors event and the monthly science fiction film event. Um, we actually are also doing, uh, under the, the Tachyon umbrella and the SF and SF umbrella, two other events I want to let you know about. One, Tachyon Publications is having its bar mitzvah tomorrow, and it's our 13th anniversary, <laughs> and we'll be at Borderlands Books on Valencia Street from 2 o'clock to 6 o'clock with readings by Terry Bisson and Cage Baker. We'll have the presentation of the annual Emperor Norton Awards, uh, which is always fun. Uh, there's cake, really good chocolate rum cake. Come for the cake, if nothing else, I tell you. Uh, prizes, we have a giveaway. It's really a lot of fun, so I hope to see you all there. And then our big, big event, October 9th, Thursday, October 9th, we are doing a Litquake event. Um, one of their, as they are putting it, one of their first forays into speculative fiction. Uh, our event, which will be a steampunk evening, steampunk themed evening with Joe Lansdale, uh, Cage Baker, Rudy Rucker, and a few special guests. Uh, one of, I can't remember his name to save my life, but he'll be here to tell us really quickly what steampunk is all about. So it'll be a really fun evening. Um, and that again is October 9th. And then SF and SF, our next event, uh, will be October 18th with Kim Stanley Robinson, Cecilia Holland, and a very special last-minute guest, Barry Maltzberg. So without further ado, thank you guys again for coming tonight. I'm going to turn you over to our fabulous moderator, without which we couldn't do any of this, Terry Bisson. Cool. Thank you. <laughs> thank you all for coming. Uh, as Rena said, SFNSF has been bringing science fiction and fantasy to the Bay Area for a couple of years. And uh, we're delighted with the way this program has grown and become part of the cultural community here. And uh, in case people don't know, speculative fiction is sort of like science fiction, only it's interesting and well-written. Um, so we're proud to be part of the speculative fiction crowd as well. Um, I just want to remind people to turn on your cell phones in case you get a better offer. And... <laughs> Uh, as I always do. It's the oldest joke in the world. But let's get right to it. The drill is we have, we have two very interesting readers tonight. Then we'll have a discussion about science fiction and piss and moan about the world and the market and this and that and the other, which we like to do. There'll be a little break after our readers. But 
um, rather than go on and on about all that, I want to introduce a writer who's very well known as a blogger, sort of a curmudgeonly opinionated blogger. David, uh, really? <laughs> <laughs> who has, is, is known as a horror writer, has twice been nominated for the Bram Stoker Award, once I think for his first published work. Was it Second right? published work, but yes. Second published work. Uh, and also, uh, was that uh, Move Underground? Or it was uh, Northern Gothic, actually, though. Northern Gothic, yes. all right. And then he wrote a uh, Move Underground, which is Lovecraft meets Kerouac. He has a book, uh, a new book out called Under My Roof, which I want everybody to look at. It's going to be out in the the, uh, the lobby. And, of course, both authors will be signing books. He also has a book of short stories that's in the works right now called You Might Sleep. You Might Sleep Ellipsis. You dot, might. dot, dot, yes. Ah, okay. You might sleep. I guess that dot, means dot, you might dot. not sleep. Exactly. But uh, so without further ado, I'll let him introduce this story, and I will introduce Nick Mamatas. Thank you for Thank being you. here. Mamatas, thanks. Mamatas. Thank you, Mr. Bison. Yes, okay, cool. <laughs> Mamatas. Nick Mamatas. I'm glad to be here. I used to live here before. I lived here for about a year uh, in 2004, 2005. Then I had this really traumatic brain injury, and it made me leave the coast back to go back east. And... Uh, for years, I suffered from this problem that my brain was stuck in 2005, and I did, had a lot of therapy and did a lot of mental work, and I sort of fixed it for the most part. I have just one last problem that's still, like, stuck in 2005. I still like mashups. I still think mashups are awesome. Like when they had that, uh, you know, uh, Green Day song, the Oasis song together, I thought that was fantastic. I still listen to them all the time. Uh, so I wrote you a mashup today, actually. Uh, this is a mashup of H.P. Uh, Lovecraft and Raymond Carver. Yes. Of course. This is called uh, That of Which We Speak when we speak of the unspeakable. <laughs> it was August. Everything was going to change. They could feel it. Jace was a prophet, and prophets like the talk, so he did. He was talking about the end of all things and how great it was going to be. They were sitting, Jace and Melissa and Stephen, near the mouth of a cave around a rock shaped conveniently like a coffee table. The kerosene lamp flickered and stank up the place a little bit. Stephen can taste it in his whiskey. You can forget about love, Jace said. Jace wasn't into love, and really he wasn't into sex anymore, though he'd had plenty, he told his friends. Even just up on the way up to the cave he, uh, to wait for the end, he'd hired a girl, and then later stopped at the bus station. Anything, anytime, anywhere, he said. Stephen thought that Jace was just going on about sex because Melissa was right there, catty-corner to him, on the side of the rock deeper in the mouth of the cave. Why do you even bring up love, Stephen asked. Then Melissa said that she thought the conversation was already about sex, as it would have to be once the Missoula bus station was brought up as a setting, if not the main topic. She gulped her teacher's whiskey right after that, and Stephen took a sip of his and then reached for the bottle. Love is that supposed all-powerful, all-encompassing all force. You know, a dog gets lost on vacation with its owners, then four months later shows up on the doorstep covered in twigs and with its fur all matted up, but in fine shape with a big panting smile. Yeah, I saw that on television, Stephen said. Dog follows owner's home on a 3,000-mile beam of love. Beam of love, exactly, Jace said. Well, how do you think the dog got home, said Melissa. Luck? Stephen guessed aloud that Jace didn't believe in luck either. Or maybe just bad luck, or that luck was running out for everyone. No, not at all, Jace said. I consider myself very lucky. He poured himself another drink. He waved his plastic cup of teachers under his chin like he was sniffing at a fine wine or some Italian grandma's Sunday meat sauce. I'm lucky to be here for the end. To see the skies when the stars blink out, to watch the seas boil and the elder gods crush us all. That's him, Melissa said to Stephen. 
This is all about tentacles and worship. He likes drama. He's a drama king. Stephen said, yeah, there's a sucker born every minute. He tried to keep it going to extend it into a joke. Suckers and tentacles, something like that. Uh, but the whiskey took the joke away from him, even as it helped him open his mouth for the wind-up. So he just repeated, suckers, like that. <laughs> Jace stood up, dusted off his ass, and teetered toward the mouth of the cave. Stephen thought Jace might start urinating, sending a stream down in the valley below the cave into the colorless grass. Instead, Jace just threw up his arms and shouted, fuck love. If he was hoping for an echo, he didn't get one. Not even a cricket cricketed in response. I'm lucky, he said, turning back to Stephen and Melissa, because I've never had a thing to do with love. You know what my childhood was like? Same as anyone else's, Melissa said. Exactly, Jace said. Sitting on a couch, doing stuff, growing up. I caught a ball, my father's proud. I hurt my foot. My mother clucks her tongue and pulls out the splinter with a pair of tweezers. Sounds dreadful, Stephen said. He squinted his eyes to keep the flicker of the lamp away, turning Jason to a little buzzing kaleidoscope. Sounds just like being raped twice a day, every day, for 14 years or something. Well, here's the thing, Jay said. He stomped back up to the rock and kicked at it twice, knocking the mud from his heels. It's boring. Everything gets boring. Yeah, said Melissa. I had a boyfriend once who ended up in prison. Did some time there. Jason and Stephen both got quiet at that. Well, it was nothing bad. Well, nothing all that bad. It was just a fight. But he knew some stuff. He knew judo. And the guy he was fighting ended up in a coma. So anyway, he went to prison for 90 days, and he was mostly very bored. He said everyone else who was there was eager for the hour of exercise, even if it meant getting shivved or raped by three guys, because otherwise it was just boring. Jay snorted. You probably loved him too, huh? Waited for him to get out of prison? It was only three months, Stephen said. Stephen wondered if anybody would wait for him for three months to get out of prison, if he'd actually put some guy in a coma. Nothing would put anybody in anything, not even a headlock. He could run somebody over with a car. He could go on, he can go to prison then and then be bored except for one hour a day of raping. Uh, yeah, I guess I did. I loved him more when he wasn't around. Melissa looked a little anxious, or maybe she's just chilly. She was deeper in the cave, where it was wet, on the lip of the dark. You know, when someone's around, you remember the bad breath and the rolls of fat hanging over their elastic of the underwear and that annoying way he winks when he's saying something he isn't sure about. So I broke up with him, but I waited till he was out of prison. Because you loved them, Stephen said. Because you were bored, Jace said. Because I didn't know what else to do. It's hard to break up with somebody in prison. The phone calls are monitored. You have to wait for certain days to go visit. It's not a place for a real conversation. You can taste the metal of the prison on your tongue. It's like being sick or allergic to everything. Allergic to everything, yeah, Jay said. I feel a prophecy coming on. He shook out his hair. There was a leaf in it. Stephen leaned back, his arms behind him, a finger brushing against Melissa's jeans. Jay's trembled, his arms wide. He started doing his tongue's trick. Melissa scooted forward and shifted on her hips to keep from making contact with Stephen. She reached for the teachers and took a pull from the bottle, then put it back on the rock and held the cup to her lips, tilting it backwards to get some last drop she'd previously forgotten. There was almost a third left of the bottle, so Stephen poured some more into his cup, too, and said, What do you think of all this yuba-la-la-la-la stuff? Which was a pretty good impression of Jace right then. I don't know. Is it real? Well, I don't know if he's real, but it's sure real, Melissa said. No denying that now. Not after New York and not after the Mississippi River. And China. It annoyed Stephen when everybody forgot about China and how they tried to nuke that thing and they went and appeared all hungry eyes and inside out angles and then the bomb wiped out half of Shenzhen and flooded Hong Kong and the thing just came back the next day but radioactive. <laughs> One time Jace just laughed and said that China, and in China everybody forgot about New York but Stephen doubted that. You see, that's the thing, Jace said. He was on the ground, arms and legs swaying like he was making a grass and leaf and twig angel. Everything, everyone thinks love is the answer. 
You look at someone and say, I love you, and the cancer gets better. Or I love you, and they love you back. Or I love you, and the decades they spend in shitty jobs buying shitty food means something. Or I love you, and you're not a fat drunk anymore. Stephen wondered if Jason's mother had been a fat drunk. Is this still the prophecy part, Melissa asked? Can't you tell yet, asked Stephen. Melissa had been following Jason around for longer than Stephen had, for two months, since the Mississippi started swimming with the carpets of tadpoles with the faces of men. Stephen had just wandered up to them on the cave the night before. Not prophecy, baby, reality. It's just a story, my story. My folks said they loved me, so they showed it to me by buying me fish sticks and Christmas presents, and then they died after a car wreck. Not in one, after one. Months later, in traction, their skin all shriveled and burnt. Nothing but screaming pain for both of them. The pain of sponges and business-like nurses with their thick shoulders going at them to keep them alive and in more pain. Sorry, Stephen said. Are you really, Jay said? Stephen thought about it. Decided he wasn't really that sorry. He said that mostly just because he hoped that saying sorry would make Jason move on to another topic of conversation. Yeah, well, that's what we do, right? We move on. I love my parents, too. They train me to love them with food and physical contact. My brain developed on the, under the tyranny of love. You know what? After they died and I cried and all of that, and I still had to figure out how to keep the lights on and the fridge running, and the, then the love didn't matter anymore. And when I took off and hit the road, people asked about my parents, but just in general. Where are your parents? Why are you out here on the streets? Where are your parents? I was just a broken tooth on an otherwise functional cog in a big machine. There was no love out there, and I moved on. I don't even love my parents anymore. Love fades like a rash. That last one made Stephen laugh. Yeah, you keep laughing, laughing boy, Jay said. He was up on one elbow now, another arm stretched toward the rock. Whiskey, he said. And Stephen leaned over and gave him the bottle of teachers, and he took the sip and scowled. Well, so much for all that, eh? Forget cogs. We got crazy backwards, ninth-dimensional geometry in the machines now. Can't you see them in the sky when you look up and squint and concentrate on the Anja Chakra? The dark sky, the uh, and tentacles, and the sky just as dark. Yeah, the end of the universe. It's a whistling squid. Great, Melissa said. Stephen looked at her. Her hair was stringing and slick from the road in the woods. She smiled tightly over her teeth and fiddled with her thumbnails. Oh, here they come, she said to Stephen. She pointed out with her chin to the dark patch of the woods. There was something moving or crawling or oozing out there Stephen couldn't see. Stephen often couldn't see much anyway. Chase didn't seem to notice either because he was still talking about the sky tentacles. This is really, you know, Stephen said, then he just stopped talking. He held out his arms and waved them around a bit. Chase's talk had devolved back into the thrashy gibbering. Yeah, it is, Melissa said. The shogoth oozed uh, into the clearing like an oil slick, filmed and, and then projected backwards, sliding uphill. It seemed to take them a long time to do. You know, I got into this sort of thing a long time ago, before the Mississippi, before New York, when it was all just hints and footnotes and history. It felt good, really. I was just a kid. I went to the mall, I painted my nails, I drank orange Julius's. Stephen took uh, the hint and jogged around the rock to pick up the bottle from the next where Jason lay and brought it back to the cave. Melissa had her hands and fingers outstretched like he was waiting for a baby to be passed to her. She drank, then said, it just felt good that there was something out there bigger than yourself. To think that you knew something other people didn't know. Well, everybody knows now. Yeah, and people mostly got used to it, Jay said. We didn't go insane or anything. Well, not more crazy than the people who get in some war during some epidemic. Well, except for Jace. Are you in love with him? I don't know, kind of. He's like looking in the mirror. So that's what would have happened, I think, when I look at him. If I ever never really grew up, if I never got used to the idea of doing the dishes, even though they just get dirty again. At the last minute, Jace broke. He stopped his twisting around and babbling and tried to run back into the cave. Ashaga threw itself high and came down on him like a wave. Stephen heard a hard crunch. He looked over to Melissa, who still looked uh, passive. The Shagath pulled themselves together across the little plane on pseudopods, dragging and sliding closer and closer. Whiskey's gone, Melissa said, but it wasn't. And then Melissa took up the bottle and turned it up into her mouth, puffing up her cheeks. 
She stood up and took the kerosene lantern and turned the little dial down to bring the wick low, leaving only a, silver, a sliver of orange to glow in the night. Stephen could hear his heart beating. He could hear Melissa's heart beating too, he thought, even over the wet shoe squelching noises of the Chagas. He could hear the human noises where we sat there making, not moving at all, as the cave went dark. The Chagas stretched over the entrance. Then a ball of fire from Melissa's lips, uh, mouth, as she spit out the teachers and across the burning wick of the lamp. A Chagas burned and shriveled in the retreat, but then a few more came. The end. <laughs> You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Thank you.